How are God's people today? It's so good to be with you. Do me a favor, take your Bibles and join me once again in the book of Genesis chapter 1. And we are going to pick up where we left off last week. In this foundational book, the first book in your Bible, we are in a series on Genesis, and it's a four-part thing. We're going to break this up, kind of take our time with it, but the first section is called Beginnings, and that means over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the early chapters of the book of Genesis, and there's a lot packed into those early chapters. There's a whole slew of themes that reverberate, that echo throughout the rest of your Bible, and we're, we're looking at the purpose of man. What is man's purpose? He was created in perfection. He was created to glorify God, to be in relationship with God. That's his purpose. We're going to look at the problem of man because by, uh, uh, by chapter 3, there's going to be a fall. There's going to be a disobedience. Man's fellowship with God is going to be broken. And that problem is going to play out through the rest of your Bible. And then we're going to look at the promise of God to man. In the wake of that fall, he's going to say, a redeemer is a coming. A savior is coming through mankind, and he will set things right. And so all of those, those, those are some colossal themes right there. And they get started very early on in Genesis. God doesn't waste any time. He, he gets to the big stuff right away. And so I'm excited to continue this study, and so that's what we're going to do today. There hangs in the Gallery of Art in London, England, the National Gallery. There is a painting there. It's a painting by the Dutch master Jan van Eyck. Jan van Eyck was an influential figure in the art world, in in art history. He is regarded as possibly the first guy to invent oil painting. And he is just renowned as a master. He is also seen as a bridge between the classical era, the, the medieval era, and the Renaissance. And among his many works that are regarded as masterpieces, there is one in particular called the Arnolfini Portrait. The Arnolfini Portrait. I'm going to show you a picture right here on the screen. This is the Arnolfini Portrait. Now, this appears at, at first glance to be a straightforward medieval wedding portrait. Now, you're looking at those two, those subjects, and you're thinking, they look a little funky. They look a little odd, but I assure you, in the 1400s, this was the height of fashion. And in fact, I have it on good authority that our new executive pastor, Bobby Fisher, had a hat just like this dude back in the 70s, all right? But I'm, I, I just I want you to see this, this picture here because it is representative of the, the masterpieces that, uh, that uh, Jan van Eyck would paint. Now, this is not a standard portrait. Let's look at that picture one more time. This couple right here are regarded as historical figures. You've got Giovanni Arnolfini on the, on the left there, and that is his wife, Costanza. Now, Costanza, I am told, died a full year before this painting was commissioned. A full year. And so this is not a wedding portrait. This is a memorial to a dead wife. And there are hidden throughout this painting many clues that reveal that, that truth. And if you stand and you study this painting, you will, you will see things jump out at you. There is so much complexity. There are so many intricacies in this work. And you see the work of the master in all of the detail, in his use of perspective and depth and shadow and light. And you look around that room and you see the, the ornateness of the bedpost and the chandelier. And you can see detail on the, those objects just outside that open window there. But the most remarkable thing, I just want to tell you about this 
In those days, in medieval days, artists did not sign their work. They did not sign their work. Today, you go to an art gallery, you want to know who painted this painting, you look down at the bottom corner, you see their name right there. Well, not so in the medieval era. And yet, Jan van Eyck found a way to sign his work. Go back to that first image there. If you can look in between those two to that back wall, you can just make out an inscription on the wall, and it's in Latin. And what it says in English is simply this. Van Eyck was here. (laughs) Sounds like something you'd read on a subway wall, doesn't it? And yet that is not the remarkable way that he signed his work, because if you look just below that, there's a mirror hanging on that wall, a convex mirror, and if we could just zoom in on that, now you see the work of the master's hand. Jan van Eyck has painted in incredible detail the same room from a different perspective. He has painted these subjects from the back, but that's not all. There's another figure in that room. And it is none other than the artist himself. Follow me here. The master artist has placed his likeness into his creation. You know, the ornateness, the detail in that painting pales in comparison to the complexity of the universe. And as we studied last week, we saw that God uh, created everything. We looked at the totality of that, and it sort of builds on itself as he creates. He begins by creating the basic elements of the universe, time, space, matter. That matter at first was inanimate, but it became animated. It became biological as he, as he creates the sea creatures in the deep, and he creates the birds in the air, and on day six he creates the land beasts, both domestic and wild, but it, it's not until He reaches that pinnacle as creation moves like a pyramid to a peak, a pinnacle. What does he make next? He makes finally the greatest creation of all. He saved the best for last. God is going to put his signature on his work. I want you to look at verse 26 of chapter 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God is going to place his image into creation so that all will look at it and know who the maker is. And this image is going to dwell in a being that will be the greatest of all creation. And God calls this being man. Would you bow with me? We're going to unpack all of this today. Jesus, I just pray that you would bless us, that you would bless our time in your word. Your word is eternal. May we be uh, awestruck at what we see. May we marvel at it, God, but may we come away from here recognizing there is a dignity in every human being, and that dignity points straight to you. And we give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us make man in our image. The imago Dei is what theologians call this concept. The image of God, what is it? Well, it doesn't show up in creation until man comes on the scene. It doesn't appear in the animal world. And I have said that man is the greatest of all God's creation. What makes him the greatest creation is this. It is the image of God. The Hebrew word for image is tselem. Tselem. And it speaks, it comes from a root that that talks about carving, to carve. You see, we see this word in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image. And so there's this connotation here that seems to convey the idea that we are carved in the image of God. 
And some think about that and they assume that to be made in the image of God means, uh, you know, it has something to do with how we look. You know, it says that we're made in the image of God and so God must look like us. God must look like, like people. Well, that has nothing to do with being made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God is more than just my physicality. And thank the Lord for that. I mean, some of us are, frankly, quite funny looking. You know, I, I don't want my, uh, my dignity to be tied to my physicality. My physicality has changed over the years. An old wrestling buddy of mine sent me a picture a, a couple of years ago. He, he was scrounging around in some photos, and he found a photo of us at a tournament back in the day. And he and I were in the same weight class, and this was a good memory for me because I happened to win that tournament, and I was on the top podium, had me a little medal. It was a happy memory, and I thought, I'm going to show my daughter. And so I showed her my phone, and she looks at it, and she goes, who's that? <laughs> I said, that's me. And she goes, what happened? <laughs> I said, you'll find out. <laughs> all right? We're all products of the fall, okay? Happens to everybody, all right? Uh, but the fact, this is not physical, the fact that we are made in the image of God means something. And in your notes it means this. It means that God created people as a testimony. A testimony. We are a testimony to him. And in three ways in particular in your notes also, we are a testimony to his deity. His deity. You have dignity as a human being. There's something unique about you. In all creation, there's something that you can do that the animal realm cannot do. You can reason. You can reason. You've got this ability to reason. If there's no God, how do you explain reason? Well, atheists have tried. They've tried to explain this. They say the brain, uh, you know, the mind is not reasonable. What it is is it's just an organ that secretes thought, much like your liver secretes bile. That's a nice thought, isn't it? What about a soul? How do you explain a soul? Well, Freud says no such thing. No such thing as a soul. No, that's, that's, that's archaic thinking. That's superstition. Uh, we are not a soul. We merely have animal instinct. It's based on self-preservation. We just do what's in our best interest. You're just materialistic. You're, just, you're, just, uh, you're biological, biochemical, biomechanical. That's it. No soul. But there's something else here. There's a dignity in man. There's a sanctity in human life that points to a creator, to a God. And to acknowledge our uniqueness is to acknowledge that God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it reads like this. It says, he has made everything beautiful in his time. And then it says this, and I love this. It says, and he has put eternity into man's heart. Isn't that a beautiful phrase. He's put eternity in our hearts. That means that there's something eternal in every human being. We are a soul. That means that we go on. We last forever, just as God is forever. And if you deny that, you deny God. And uh, when you deny God, that means that you are rendering man to be nothing. And in our, in our basest uh, being, in our heart of hearts, nobody really wants to believe that we are Nothing. Even the godless want to seek out something greater. Maybe they don't want to acknowledge the true God, but they want to think that there's something out there. This is the nature of people. That's why people uh, look at nature and they try to deify and elevate nature. They talk about mother nature. They talk about father time. They talk about fate with a capital F or, or providence with a capital P. Why do they do that? Because man is not willing to live with, with this notion that there's just nothing greater out there. That there's no grand purpose. 
because to do that would say that we're nothing, that we're meaningless. Now, some, some say, well, we should just embrace the, the, the meaninglessness. We should just embrace the nothing. You know, just this is it. This life is all you get. Grab all the gusto you can. Make it count. You got to live. Live now. Enjoy life. Live life. Because when you're gone, you're gone. You know, I can hear Ricky Gervais saying something like that. But I, I, I question whether they really believe that. You know, atheists say they don't believe in God. I'm not sure I believe in them. I don't know. I don't think there's atheists. I think that all men believe that on some level they believe that there is a God. Have you ever noticed when people curse, they invoke deity? That's why they use the word God. That's why they say Lord. That's why they use that precious name of Jesus as a curse word. This is what we do. Have you noticed that when you curse that you invoke deity? Some of you are like, I don't don't do that. (laughs) Hey, even the tamer curse words have some sort of spiritual connotation. Gracious me. Mercy, right? We're in the South. We got a billion of these. Saints alive. Land of Goshen. I mean, how far back you want to go, you know? Uh, even damn and hell. Who is it that damns men's souls? It's God. Where does he send them? Hell, you know? There's always something biblical about this. And the point is you're swearing by something greater than you. Nobody swears you using, you know, biological terminology. Nobody uses evolutionary terms when they swear. Nobody hits their head and goes, ah, protozoa. You know, they don't. They don't get mad at somebody and go, what the amoeba were you thinking? They don't do that. And the reason is we know there's a God. We know there's a God because we were made in his image. And we know that in our deepest heart. In Genesis 2, 7, it's going to say, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And some of your versions say a living soul. All right? And I like that phrase. The word there in Hebrew is nefesh. Nefesh. Uh, And it, it has the implication of consciousness. Okay? Now, you do see some members of the animal kingdom... That, that in Genesis are granted nefesh, but it's, their consciousness is different from ours. You have a will. You have a seat of emotion, all right? Why do you have a will? Because God has a will. Uh, why do you have emotion? Because God manifests emotion. We see that in Scripture. He manifests anger and, 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 and rejoicing and uh, sorrow even. Why do you have intellect? Because our God is knowledge. It's an essential attribute. It's part of who he is. He is omniscient. And we reflect that deity. And we also, in your notes, we reflect morality. We reflect morality. We have a moral God. You get rid of God, you get rid of morality. He is the source of true morality. There's no meaning to man if God does not exist. If, you're not, uh, if there's no God, there's no man. You're just protoplasm. And if you're just protoplasm, you don't think. You just take in sensory things and you process them through this organ and it secretes thought and it it gives you a programmed response like an animal. It's just survivalist instinct. You're just doing what you're programmed to do. There's no morality. There's no right or wrong. You just do what you need to do to survive. But Adam, Scripture says, was created in perfection. He perfectly reflected God. God is perfect and so... Adam was made in his image. That means there was not a hint of evil in Adam. It's not going to last long because by chapter 3, he's going he's to fail. He's going to disobey God. He's going to rebel. 
in sin, and he will be tainted. And you know what that means? You're descended from Adam, as am I. That means that we are tainted. We are corrupt. And so in our natural state, we do not reflect the image of God in the same way that Adam did. And we never have from birth. All right? But there is an echo there. There's an echo of that image because you still understand and recognize good. Okay? Now, now some recognize good less than others do. And that's due to repeated disobedience. And we get jaded sometimes uh, because of evil and wrongdoing. But we all have this innate moral sense. You were never meant to know evil. Uh, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were originally only meant to know good. They were only meant to be in relationship with God. They disobeyed. And by consuming that fruit, that was an act of disobedience by which they now knew both good and evil. But I'll tell you this. You don't know only evil because you can only know evil apart from good. And you have to recognize good. And everyone does. And because you have an awareness of good and because you have a will, you have the possibility of choosing good over evil. The possibility exists. And when you do, when you choose good, when you affirm good, when you condemn evil, when you reject evil, when you do anything benevolent, you are testifying that you were originally created in the image of God. Now, you need the Holy Spirit to do it right. And we don't have that at birth. But we gain it when Ephesians says in uh, verse 22, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. See, only when you're born again can you kind of reclaim that image that is now marred in you. But we know evil. We recognize evil because we also know good innately. When Putin invaded Ukraine, I don't know when that was, a couple years ago, a year and a half ago, whatever, almost uniformly, people were aghast. They're like, that's wrong. That's evil. Why would he do that? He, he doesn't have any business doing that. Really? Why? I mean, if there's, no, if there's no God, we're just protoplasm. He can invade Ukraine. That's just survivalist instincts. He's just doing what's in his best interest right there. You know? I mean, that, that's what evolutionary thought leads to. If I believe in evolution... I can't be mad at Putin for invading Ukraine. Go ahead, Vlad. Take all the tanks you need, man. Flatten whatever towns you need. Kill as many women and children as you need. This is evolution. It lands here. It has no problem with it. has no problem with a German dictator in the 30s and 40s invading Poland. Gassing six million Jews. This is where it all leads. You end up in a dark place, but morality comes from God, and we reflect that, and it's manifested in our lives through relationship, how we interact with our fellow man, and we, we are living out the morality that we reflect in God in how we interact with one another, and to do that, we've got to be in relationship. Everybody needs to be in relationship. Everybody needs to be in community. I know some of you are introverts. Some of you, when the pandemic started, you're like, we have to distance from each other? I was born for this. <laughs> you know. But I'm here to tell you, you may have that bent, but you need people. All right? Some of you guys at home watching online right now, glad you're joining us. Get your booty down here. All right? We miss you. We love you. Uh, we want you here. Just make sure you get dressed first, okay? 
Uh, but, but you need to be in community. That's how we are designed. God did not design us to be hermits. And we, therefore, in your notes, reflect his triunity. His triunity. Uh, we talked last week about the, the, the plural nature of God. His name, Elohim. Elohim is a plural proper noun. You use it to refer to a single being who is plural in nature. And so the Trinity is reflected in that. And we just read verse 26. Let us, us, make man in our image. Those are plural pronouns. And so there is more than one person in the Godhead. But notice this. This is crazy. If you, if you look ahead to verse 27, what does it say? It says, so God created man in his image. Now that's fascinating. We go from God referring to himself in the plural, let us make man in our image, so God created man in his image. In one verse, you go from plural to singular. How do you do that? Three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. Uh, Divine essence uniting three distinct people of the Godhead, the Trinity. God is in community with himself. And incidentally, this is not the first thing to come out of God's mouth. Let us make man in our image. Last week we talked about his first utterances. Let there be light. And there was light, right? Let there be. It was, it was a command. Ten times in this account you've got let there be. He commands things. And then he gets to this. The greatest of all creation. Does he just command mankind to be into existence? No, he does not. He, he has a conversation. He prefaces the creation of man, not with a command, but with a conversation. And that says something about how special this next creation is going to be. Because we, for, we reflect that community. We reflect that triunity. Some people say man is a, a trichotomy. Okay, that's a, that's a big word. You know what that means? That means that it says that man is three parts. He's body, soul, spirit. Trichotomy. There's a little bit of a debate about that. Some say he's not a trichotomy, he's a dichotomy. He's just body and soul, no spirit. And I've thought a lot about this. And good theologians land on either side of that. But I've thought, I've kind of played with this idea that perhaps Adam was created as a trichotomy, body, soul, spirit, and that spirit was connected to the spirit of God, but when Adam sinned, when he fell, he was out of fellowship, and the spirit of God was removed from him, and we are all corrupted because we descend from Adam and we're fallen, but when we come to faith in Christ, his spirit comes to live in us, and we go from being a dichotomy, body and soul, to now being reconnected with the spirit of God, and we are trichotomous once again, body, soul, spirit. Is that true? I don't have any idea. But there's a lot to ponder here as it pertains to the triunity of God, okay? But it's definitely true that we reflect God in that there is a concept of relationship, an importance of relationship. You ever heard the platitude that God created man because he was lonely? Well, God had to make Adam because he was lonely. No. No, God was not lonely. God was not lonely. The great theologian Apologist Francis Schaeffer was asked if he believed in the Trinity, and he said, if the Bible didn't teach the Trinity, if it didn't teach that there was one God with an eternal plurality of, of person that love each other, if the Bible did not teach the unity of God with diversity, a Trinity, I would still be an agnostic, because that means he would be a weak God. He would have had to create man out of his weakness, and he believed that, and I don't believe that either. 
We don't have a weak God. We have a God who is in community with himself, and when he, when he created us, he wants us to be in community as well. That's how we're designed. All right, I've squeezed all I can out of verse 25. Let's move on. Verse 26, it says, And let them have dominion. And let them have dominion. Uh, this means, in your notes, God created people as the pinnacle of all he has made. Okay, we've got dominion. I want you to think of all the magnificent things God created in those six days that we looked at last week. And it builds up, 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 up. Who's at the top? Man is at the top. We are God's grand finale of creation. He has saved the best for last. And he says, let them have dominion. You know what that means? That means we get to rule. We get to be in charge of creation. How much of creation are we granted charge of by God? He gives us a list. He says, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Well, that's pretty thorough. That's all of creation, everything in existence. There's no whale over you. There's no shark, no eagle, no turkey, no spotted owl, no dolphin, okay? You are in dominion over the earth. We are the greatest of all creation. This is where the environmental movement gets it wrong, you see. Now, we are to take care of God's creation. We are not to pollute it. We are, we are to be stewards of it, okay? But there is a faulty notion out there. We err when we say that man is inferior to the rest of creation. We are not. Okay, The Bible says clearly that man is a part of the created order, but that he, he has been elevated to oversee the created order. That is biblical, and it's reiterated in the next verse. It says in 27, so God created man in his own image. If you missed it, he repeats it twice right here. He says, in the image of God, he created him. Man. Man is generic. That term is generic. We are all man. You got that? I don't care if you're, if you're male, female. You are man. That is a generic term. Adam is the word in Hebrew. That's why the first man's name was Adam. Adam means man. But now he's going to give us some subsets. He goes on. He says, male and female, he created them. So understand this in your notes. God created people with two distinct yet equal genders. God created man, male and female. Man is generic. These are subsets, male and female. Now next week we're going to go into the creation of Eve. Specifically, we're going to talk about the institution of marriage. Uh, and we will go into these two. And by the way, there are only two genders. All right. There's none of this non-binary nonsense in here. There is male, there is female, that's it. Uh, but I want to focus on the equality here. Now, when I perform weddings, when I officiate, I say the following. I often say that, that woman is created in Genesis, and God creates woman not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trod upon by him, but from his side to stand next to him and from near his heart to be loved by him. And that is the beauty that we see in Genesis. Now, uh, this is only possible in a theistic, Trinitarian paradigm. If you take away an infinite personal God, women are not women anymore. 
Peter said, you husbands, grant your wife honor as a fellow heir in the grace of life. All right? Now, that is counter to ancient pagan culture. Rome and Greece did not believe that. They all, to a, to a man, believed that, that women were inferior to men. Now, historic Christianity recognizes uh, that there are distinctive roles with men and women. All right? And that is perfectly fine to see. You can understand, newsflash, men and women are different. Have you noticed that? There are things that, that, that they, there are obvious distinctions between them. And so I do believe, based on interpretation of Scripture, that, that there are God-ordained roles uh, that correlate to men and women. Uh, and I believe that this is why God makes note of two separate genders. He didn't just lump us all together and said, procreate. Just find a mate, you know. There, are, there is something distinct about men and women. And so we are intended to complement one another. And by that, I don't mean saying, you look nice today. This is not what that means. It means that one walks in a role that God intends for them that he does not intend for the other. There is something that one is good at that the other is not, and vice versa. And you can believe that uh, with, uh, with upholding equality that is present here in the text. There is an equality, a glory, a dignity among men and women. You take God out of that, you take Genesis out of that, and it's just rule of the jungle. And when you do that, women get dominated by men. And they get crushed. And that's wrong. And that's not God's design. And even our secular world would say, it's wrong for women to be dominated. Unless, you know, unless a man decides he's a woman. And then it's okay. But I digress. I'm going to get mail. You can send any grievances to Bobby Fisher at the Lamb's Chap. All right. I want you to now look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What is this in your notes? This is saying that that God created people to have stewardship. Stewardship. And part of that stewardship involves multiplying. Multiplying. What's the command when he says multiply, fill the earth? What command is that? Make babies. That's the command right there. God did not create everything to just have one dude, one dudette, and a bunch of critters. The intention is for creation to be sustained. Sustained. Last week we looked at all the plants and the trees and all of that. What did they all have? What were they all created with? Seeds. Well, so was Adam. He came with seed, right? And Eve's going to come with eggs. And so they are already created by God to reproduce. And there's a command here, fill the earth. And don't just fill it. He says, subdue it. Rule it. Tend to it. Look after it. Cultivate it. Work it. Work is part of God's design. You say, I thought work was a product of the fall. Only the toilsome part of work. God intends for us to work. You see, Adam has not fallen at this point. His body does not wear out like ours do now. Work comes very naturally to him. He's made for it. He's good at it. It's part of God's design. And we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord will put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. Okay? So back in chapter 1, we go on. He says he's going to have all this and work and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Pretty soon, uh, man is going to name all the animals. 
He's going to put them in categories. And some have said, well, that, see, that's why I believe in an old, old earth. These days are not literal days. They're long ages because it's going to take a while. It's going to take years for him to name all the animals. Uh, Adam is perfect at this point. By our standards, he would be superhuman. So this is not a problem for him. He can get this done in a day. And it's part of his stewardship. And we see in stewardship in verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given, I want you to underline that word given, I've given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth and every bird in the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything has the, that has the breath of life, I have given, there's that word again, every green plant for food, and it was so, uh, the word given is very, very important because that is what makes stewardship. Adam is not uh, simply exercising responsibility. This is not entrepreneurialism. He's not building something on his own. This is stewardship. When you are steward of something, you are tending to something that belongs to someone else. And Adam is looking after God's world. It's not man's world. Man has been given dominion over it by a holy God. But it belongs to God. And so what is given to him, he is steward over. And I want you to notice what is given to him in what we just read. He is given every plant yielding seed and every green plant. You know what that means? That means that man was originally created to be I can't even say it. He was originally created to be that. I can't. Vegetarian. I just lost 90% of you. I know. I know. Now, you vegans just woke up. You're like, I'm sorry, what? What was that? What? Yeah, yeah. Now, listen, I love a good burger. I love a nice, juicy steak. Crispy bacon. I mean, come on. But look, going strictly off the text here, as much as it pains me to admit it, the diet of nature as originally created was veggie-based. Okay. Now, by this, the veggies, the vegetarians are like, amen. Okay. Uh, and listen, that doesn't mean it's a sin for us now to chow down, because I'll explain that later on. But an- I would say not only man, but animals originally created were to be vegetarian as well at first. Uh, was nature originally red of tooth and claw? No. Adam's, uh, animals were not always carnivorous. I mean, Adam's going to sit there and name them all. They can't be eating each other while he does that, or him. Now, we don't know where ferocity began in nature. We don't know when. Uh, definitely after the fall. Possibly after the flood. That's possible. We do know that man is not allowed to eat meat until after the flood. Noah would be the first guy to have a steak. Okay? That's the first time. Adam did not have permission, nor did the next eight uh, generations. Some of you hearing that are wondering, how then is it possible that the first sin was to eat of that tree? Why isn't the first sin, you know, chomping down a ribeye? I mean, if you're going to do something wrong, do it right. Right? (laughs) Right? And the answer is that man did not crave that. He was created in perfection. Everything was granted to him, everything he could possibly need. And so this was not a thing. This is just kind of an interesting tidbit there for you. Why do we have animals with fangs and claws? Uh, or why are they carnivorous now if they were not created that way? 
Uh, I told you last week that there is an allowance for a microevolution within the created order, that they evolve horizontally but never vertically. We don't change classes. We don't change our genus. We don't go from one type of animal to a, a completely different type of animal. And so this is a matter of adaptation. And really, if you think about it, it's, it's an act of mercy. See, they couldn't be carnivorous in the beginning because you had, to, you had to populate the earth. But over time, there would need to be this so that animals did not go extinct. And so, But what we're seeing here is the ideal at creation. Now we look on in verse 31. It says, And God saw everything that he had made. And this is very important. And behold, it was very good. I want you to underline very good. Up until now, he said, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He's going to say, It is very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What makes this day very good? Is he talking just about day six or is he talking about all of creation in general? I don't think it matters. Because he's ending here, the way he's finishing is with the greatest creation of all. And what makes man the greatest of all creation is the image of God. And that is very good. And in your notes, I want you to see that God created people to bring him glory that is the ultimate purpose in all of creation. It is the only purpose he is concerned with. I've got people that have told me they think the purpose of creation in the Bible is, is the salvation of man. Wrong. It is the glory of God. Now, the salvation of man is perhaps the greatest uh, evidence of glory to God, the greatest expression of glory to God, but it's all about him. It is not about us. We are to be redeemed so that we may worship him. And that desire ought to fuel your passion to see souls saved. That people would come to faith in order to be transformed and to be able to worship in spirit and in truth and bring him glory. And that is our purpose. And in chapter 2, as we cross into this next chapter, we see with worship as our purpose, he now gives us a vehicle at creation for that worship in verse 1 of chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He rested. Was he all just tuckered out? Bless his heart. No. No, God doesn't get tired. He's giving us a model here. Moses is going to put an ordinance into the law for the, the people of Israel. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh, uh, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. He says in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And this is the day that the Jews would recognize as a day that they didn't focus on anything but Yahweh. Now, do we worship on the Sabbath day? Do we have a Sabbath as Christians today? We do, but it's not a day. It's a person. I don't know if you've noticed, this is Sunday. This is not the Jewish Sabbath. That was yesterday. All right? Sunday is not the Sabbath. This is the Lord's day. This is traditionally the day that he rose from the dead. And so the church has always worshipped on this day. All right? But it's not about a day. Why do Christians worship? Our Sabbath is Jesus Christ. He is our rest. 
eternally. So it's not about a day for us. We are new covenant people. We gather not because of a day, but we gather to honor the Lord's command to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And what is it that we do on, on such a gathering instance? We worship and we study his word and we give and we serve and we pray together to be in community as God is in community and we do this that the world may look at us and they see us doing, they see the church doing what the church is designed by God to do and in living out his plan, the world observes a living signature that they may know who it is that has done this work and our prayer is that he would do the same work in them. I want you to bow with me. At this time, I'm going to ask everybody that is going to follow the Lord Jesus in baptism, if they would go ahead and take their places as they've been instructed to do. As all of our volunteers come down. This text reminds us of the dignity, the glory of man, but God, we know what's coming. We know that in chapter 3, there's going to be a fall, and it's going to affect all of mankind. And my prayer, Lord, is that today we, we see the, the great care and the love and the joy that went into creating your greatest creation of man. You have such love for us, God. And because of that love that you had for us, how it must have broken your heart that we gave into temptation, that we are separated from you spiritually, God. And at this moment, I would just want to also invite anybody in this room, if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would recognize that he created you and that he created you to be in fellowship with him. But because of sin, if you don't know Jesus, you are not in fellowship with the Lord. But the Son of God was sent to die as a sacrifice for you in your place to offer a free gift of grace that would restore you if you would only take it, if you would take it by faith, you could be restored to the image of that holy God and fulfill your purpose for which he created you, that you might bring glory to him perfectly. Hebrews says the only thing that pleases God is faith, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And so when we come by faith and we receive Jesus Christ, we are now fully in the image of God. And that is what our God wants to see when he looks at his creation, that he would see souls that reflect his image perfectly because of Jesus. And if you're here today, let us go to the Lord together and let us let us pray the prayer that perhaps you've never prayed. Let us make a commitment that perhaps you've never made. If you know as you sit here today, I am lost. I am apart from God. It doesn't have to remain that way. I pray that you would just invite him into your heart and it can be this way. Just pray along with me. Not, not anything magical about these words. It's not a formula. It's not a potion it's a commitment of your heart you are receiving a free gift 
And you can, you can pray something along these lines. Dear Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I understand that Jesus died for my sin. I'm just fallen creation. But because of what Jesus did, I can be restored. And I'm not trusting in the work of my own fallenness. I'm accepting the free gift that you provide. And in doing so, I know you're going to come and you're going to live in my heart. And you're going to return me to the image in which I was made. And I ask that and I receive that right now. In Jesus' name, amen.